Welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast. In this episode, my focus is persuasion, one of my favorite topics. And in particular, I'm going to be looking at metaphors and how these shape and ground the way that we understand the world. This stuff is really interesting to me, so my hope is, as always, that it will be really interesting to you too. Persuasion happens at subtle levels and at more overt, obvious levels. Sometimes the rhetoric we're faced with in media and culture and film and adverts, etc., is obvious. It can be so obvious that we feel that someone is trying to manipulate us, and, well, the really persuasive stuff tends to be less noticeable. Sometimes persuasion can be very, very subtle. So what we're going to do here is look at one of the more subtle things that persuades us in the everyday world, and that is the style of communication. Often when creating persuasive communication, it's fairly natural to pay attention to what we're saying, but style focuses on how we're saying something or how we can say something. And this is where rhetoric and the study of rhetoric comes into its own. Style refers to persuasive, extraordinary, unusual uses of language. Things like adjectives and adverbs, body language and visual language in the form of creative imagery to entice and convince an audience. You may think that style should be fairly unimportant for convincing people because style seems like such a really superficial thing. But it turns out that style may be integral for all kinds of persuasion. Maybe the superficial thing isn't that superficial. Maybe style is substance. In fact, it turns out that the way that you communicate something may be what ends up convincing that someone of what you're saying. Style pulls us into content. And when the style is all wrong, the content becomes less accessible. Of course, the line between style and content is probably impossible to draw, but the idea is still worth keeping in mind. To begin to better understand why style is important, I want to refer to an example. That is the film Inception, which was directed by the amazing director Christopher Nolan and released around 2010. The basic premise of the film is that there are these people in the film who use this thing called dream heist technology it's a little sci-fi invention, to steal ideas from people. This is called extraction in the film because ideas are extracted from the minds of subjects. Now, in the film, one of the main characters, a guy named Mr. Saito, asks this team of idea thieves if inception is possible and not just extraction. In other words, Mr. Saito wants to know if it's possible to implant ideas rather than just take them out. One of the idea thieves that he is speaking to is a guy named Arthur, and Arthur says in response to Mr. Saito's question that inception is impossible because the subject's mind can always trace the genesis of the idea. Arthur then uses this example. He says, if I tell you not to think of an elephant, what are you thinking of? Well, you're thinking of an elephant in order to not think of an elephant. Even if you think about an orangutan or that girl or that guy that you like, or if you think about what you're having for lunch, you're still thinking of those things in relation to the elephant that I told you not to think of. The idea of the elephant has been implanted and you are very aware of where you got the idea. Arthur's point in the movie is this. He thinks that 
we tend to be able to figure out where we get our ideas from. And if we can tell where we get the ideas from, then maybe we aren't going to be that easy to manipulate. Well, this works really well in the movie, but in real life, it doesn't actually make that much sense. Allow me to demonstrate. When did you first hear the word is, or the word movie, or the word this, or the words left, or artist, or burglar? I could go on and then list all the words that you've heard in your entire lifetime. And I'm sure you'll agree, it turns out that all the words that you have in your vocabulary are ideas. And I'd venture to guess and say that you can't remember where you got all of those ideas from. Of course, sometimes you will notice where ideas come from. Sometimes you will be paying attention to who you got the idea from. But for the most part, we are not clued up as to how we got the thoughts that we think. Inception is happening all the time. We are being persuaded all the time. But we're generally not aware of this. In fact, the philosopher Nathan Anderson writes, It's easy enough to deliver ideas. It's done all the time and without any need of dream heist technology. Just words and willing ears. To make them stick requires either indoctrination through repetition and persuasion or the long, painstaking process of education. Inception is happening right now while you're listening to this. Inception is part of life. We are being persuaded continuously and most of that persuasion is happening totally unconsciously, totally without our being aware of it. Of course, there are times we will become aware that someone is trying to persuade us, but often we're not aware of the primary mechanism according to which we get persuaded. And what is the primary mechanism of persuasion? Well, the primary mechanism turns out to be, and that is according to George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, metaphor. The cognitive scientist Douglas Hofstadter suggests that the foundation of all thinking is not metaphor, but analogy. However, when we get into the details, it'll turn out that metaphor and analogy amount to pretty much the same cognitive mechanism, the basic thought process of comparing or approximating one thing to another is the same in both analogy and metaphor. Of course, I know that there's a difference between metaphor and analogy at the level of definition. Metaphor tends to refer to a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. For example, one person might say, my thoughts are cloudy. Analogy, on the other hand, refers to the comparison between two things that allows both similarities and differences to become apparent. For example, at the level of analogy, I might say something like, watching a dog run into a house is like seeing a train move into a tunnel. There's a kind of parallelism over here. However, again, there is reason to see the basic cognitive processes of analogy and metaphor as being the same. In both metaphor and analogy, one thought or concept or pattern is thought through and in terms of another thought or concept or pattern. And so, with this in mind, and for the sake of simplicity, even while I treat analogy and metaphor as comparable, I'm going to stick here to talking about metaphor. If you like, you can keep in the back of your mind the idea that an analogy can be thought of as a complex metaphor. 
So a metaphor, which we usually think of being this frill that you add on to a sentence or an idea, may just be the basis of our cognition. In their book, Metaphors We Live By, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson write the following. They say, our concepts structure what we perceive, how we get around in the world and how we relate to other people. Our conceptual system, which happens to be rooted in metaphor, thus plays a central role in defining our everyday lives. This may seem like an exaggeration, but the truth is that metaphors shape how we see and live. And by the end of this, I hope that you and I will be on the same page. The writer James Geary, in his book I is the Other, says this. We think metaphorically. Metaphorical thinking is the way we make sense of the world, and every individual metaphor is a specific instance of this imaginative process at work. Metaphors are therefore not confined to spoken or written language. What Geary is getting at here is that metaphors shape our very consciousness of the world. You may think that this is an exaggeration again, but it really isn't. According to some studies, we utter around one metaphor for every 10 to 20 words that we speak, and about six metaphors per minute, and we're generally not even aware of this. Take this, I'm going to read a little excerpt from a a weather broadcast from Australia. And it's just a simple example, but it is so filled with metaphors that you can't get away from the fact that this is shaping the way that we even understand something that is as scientifically informed as meteorological research. So this is what the the broadcast says. Perth is in the grip. By the way, I'm going to emphasize the metaphors just so that you get the idea, even though it's a little annoying to do it. Perth is in the grip of a heat wave with temperatures set to soar. Temperatures are like an eagle to 40 degrees Celsius by the end of the week. Australia is no stranger to extreme weather. Melbourne was pummeled with hailstones the size of golf balls on Saturday. Droughts, bushfires and floods have all plagued large swaths of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Again, it's a bit annoying to emphasize every metaphor that's being used, but the point is, we think our thoughts are being shaped by the facts, when in actual fact, metaphor is doing a whole lot of work. Let's look at something else that Lakoff and Johnson say about what metaphor is, to get a better idea of what it's doing. They say that the essence of metaphor is understanding and experiencing one thing in terms of another. This fits with something that Aristotle says. He says that metaphor is the process of giving a thing a name that belongs to something else. Ordinary words, says Aristotle, convey only what we already know. It is from metaphor that we can best get hold of something fresh. That's a profound statement. It is from metaphor that we can best get hold of something fresh. With this in mind, we may have a better sense of what metaphor allows us to do. It starts with what we know and then shifts our attention onto what we don't yet know. It's the thing that allows us a new perception of things. It uses what is familiar to us to introduce us to what is unfamiliar. And this is what all rhetoric does. This is what persuasion is all about. It intervenes into our consciousness and tries to shift our perceptions by making use of the fundamental rhetorical tool of agreement. 
Metaphor and of course analogy can be described using a kind of formula x equals y or x approximates with y. x here would be called the target. This is the thing that we're aiming at and y is the source. This is the thing that modifies the target. x is the target, y is the source. Another way to understand this is to say that x is the object we're looking at in a way and y is the lens that we're using to look at that object. x is seen through y. A famous example of this is from Shakespeare when he writes that Juliet is the sun. He puts these words into Romeo's mouth, of course. This is a literal lie, but a metaphorical truth. Juliet is not literally the sun, but she is to Romeo. She is radiant. She, she illuminates his life. She is life-giving to Romeo. The sun is the lens through which Romeo sees Juliet. And what's amazing about this metaphor is that it allows Juliet to be seen in a new light by the audience that Shakespeare created these lines for. There's something profoundly empathic about metaphor, which is one of the main reasons for its success as a rhetorical tool. By the way, I just used the words seen and light to see something in a new light. I'm talking about understanding, but I'm using metaphors. In fact, when you start to pay attention, you'll realize that everything we say is drenched in metaphor. Nelson Goodman, in his book Languages of Art, says the following on this idea. Metaphor permeates all discourse, ordinary or special, and we would have a hard time finding a purely literal paragraph anywhere. This incessant use of metaphor springs not merely from our love of literary color, but also from urgent need of economy. If we could not readily transfer schemata to make new sorting and orderings, we should have to burden ourselves with unmanageably many different schemata, either by adoption of a vast vocabulary of elementary terms or by prodigious elaboration of composite ones. This is a bit of a mouthful, but I think he's made a good point here. So we not only need metaphor, we simply can't avoid metaphor. It's actually how we think. It's not just something that we occasionally use to spice up a sentence. And the thing to understand here is that metaphor is both the way that we currently look at the world and it's how we are introduced to new ideas. Metaphor confirms our current experience and by doing so, it allows us to expand our understanding. I'll say that again because it's important. Metaphor confirms our current experience and it expands our current understanding. I want to spend the rest of our time here talking about these two things. First, I'll talk about how metaphor confirms our current experience. Then, I'll talk a bit about how it expands our current understanding. On the first thing, it's important to realize that metaphors arise out of our actual concrete experience of the world. Lakov and Johnson make the claim that in actuality, no metaphor can ever be comprehended or even adequately represented independently of its experiential basis. This is an idea that comes through in Lakov and Johnson's book, Philosophy in the Flesh. The basic idea is that our entire cognitive capacity is shaped by our physical, sensory experience of reality. Thought is materially conditioned. This is a strange idea at first, perhaps, but I think it's very helpful because it suggests that there are two ways of knowing. 
There's knowing about something, and then there's a deep experiential knowledge. And appeals to experiential knowledge tend to be more powerful. Also, these two types of knowledge, I suppose you could expand them depending on your philosophical perspective, but these two types of knowledge play with each other and are always working in dialogue. One way to understand the material effectiveness of thought is to look at how we deal with abstract ideas. Take the concept of time, for instance. It's a very abstract thing that we really struggle to comprehend in experiential terms. Can we feel time? Most people think that we can't feel time, mostly because time is part of how we're made. It's so much a part of you that you're not able to really sense what it is, at least in direct terms. So time is a bit like this. It's really abstract. And yet we talk about time in fairly reasonable terms. But we do this by talking about time primarily in terms of other experiences. For example, we tend to talk about time by comparing time to money. We do this in different kinds of metaphors, but the grounding metaphor is always money. We say time is money. Money, after all, is something that we have some concrete experience and understanding of. And this is why we can say that we waste time or that we want to save time or that we're running out of time, we're, we're all on borrowed time. And we even say that some activities are worth our time and some are not. The only way we tend to understand time is in terms of something else. Then let's look at the idea of an idea, for example. An idea is also a really abstract thing, but ideas are treated metaphorically as objects. And this is why it's difficult to convey an idea or get it across. We treat ideas as objects. We try to capture ideas, pack more thought into fewer words. Books, we say, are filled with ideas. The abstract, the thing that's difficult to talk about in experiential terms, is treated as concrete because our first experience of the world is concrete. We first understand filling buckets, and only then do we come to terms with filling time. But often, for us, the metaphorical nature of what we're saying is forgotten. The metaphors, in a way, become dead metaphors. And this is why we don't tend to notice how prevalent they are. Lakov and Johnson say that there are really three main types of metaphors. I've already talked about time and ideas, which are what Lakov and Johnson call ontological metaphors. This is when a metaphor reflects the idea of, of projecting a nature onto a thing that does not inherently have that nature. So, for instance, we can treat the mind as a container. We fill our minds, or we can say that the mind is a machine. The mind is neither of these things, but the ontological metaphor conveys a kind of truth that is very helpful. The second type of metaphor is called an orientational metaphor. This is exactly what it sounds like it is. Orientational metaphors structure concepts in terms of their directionality. So, for instance, the metaphor that conscious is up and unconscious is down. These metaphors are expressed in different ways. Get up. Wake up. I'm up already. He rises every morning. She fell asleep. He dropped off into dreamland. She's under hypnosis. He sank into a coma. 
Or let's try another set of orientational metaphors. Health is up, sickness is down. For example, therefore, we say she's at the peak of health. Lazarus rose from the dead. He's in tip-top shape. Who wouldn't be after they've risen from the dead? He fell ill. He's sinking fast. She came down with the flu. His health is declining. She dropped dead. Virtue is up. Immorality is down, which is why we say that she has high standards. He is an upstanding citizen. She fell into depravity. He has low standards. We somehow, in all of these things, all of these words and ideas, we feel the rising and falling of of very abstract things. And in connecting the abstract with words, our feelings are directed differently. Even the word depression is a metaphor, and elation means to have high spirits. So you may feel depressed, but the metaphors surrounding that depression may make you feel worse without you even knowing it. So we've just looked at orientational metaphors. So the last kind of metaphor is a structural metaphor. This is when one kind of experience is structured through another. We say, for instance, that seeing is believing, or that seeing is understanding. And this is actually where it gets very interesting. How does this affect the way that we are persuaded? Well, whether we're conscious or unconscious, metaphor always sets up a particular kind of association. And association is a really important idea in all persuasion. And that association can shift the way that people perceive things. When Romeo says that Juliet is the sun, he takes a positive association with one thing, the sun, and he transfers it onto Juliet. This has profound implications for psychology and belief. If the metaphor that is used to explain something is negative, it'll affect the way that the thing is perceived. If I say, contrary to Shakespeare and Romeo, that Juliet is a destructive tsunami, what do you think? At the level of persuasion, this can have tremendous effects. It changes the way that you perceive the stock market, whether you said that the stock market crashed, or that it is going through a slump, or whether it takes a dive or is going through a little dip. Some metaphors are more negative than others. And the same goes for positive ones. Some are more positive than others. Metaphors can even change the way that you invest your money. They can change your faith. They can change your whole posture towards the world. And they're just metaphors. But most of these metaphors are invisible to us. I mean, just think about the fact that most expletives or swear words that we use are metaphors. When someone says, for instance, that they're leading a shitty life, they're not speaking literally. At least we hope they're not speaking literally. And well, the fact that metaphors are largely invisible to us is probably why they have so much to offer in terms of persuasion, which raises the question of how a metaphor relates to truth. This, as I'm sure you've realized, is an important issue. Because we live on what we take to be true. And this is true even if what we believe to be true isn't exactly true. And in saying that, it's worth noting that a statement can only be true relative to some understanding of it. Well, the first thing to point out here is that the truth regards the way things relate to each other. 
And even though this may seem surprising, the way things relate to each other is not an inherent property of those things, but depends on our perspective of those things. For example, let's take two statements. The first is, the fog is in front of the mountain. And the second is, the mountain is behind the fog. The basic idea of these two sentences is exactly the same. And in fact, you might think this doesn't make that much of a difference. But the difference is actually a little bit profound. In the first sentence, the fog is the most important thing being considered. In the second sentence, the mountain is the most important thing. Both statements suggest a perspective, and that perspective suggests a sense of what is more important, the fog or the mountain. The second thing to point out with regard to metaphor and truth is the relationship between categorization and truth. It's worth remembering that every emphasis is a de-emphasis. Every communication is, in some ways, a miscommunication. In fact, all categories are not fixed or uniform, but are always context-dependent. Let me say three different sentences to convey what I mean here. The first sentence is, Last night, I ate dinner with a lesbian. The second sentence is, Last night, I ate dinner with a Marxist. And the third sentence is, last night I went to dinner with a world-famous cellist. The weird thing here is that all three sentences may refer to exactly the same person. The person in question may be a lesbian, Marxist, and world-famous cellist. But the category that I prioritize in each different sentence shifts perception. The category creates a certain understanding but also a certain kind of misunderstanding, and that's going to be true of any metaphor. With regard to metaphor and truth, metaphor highlights and makes coherent certain aspects of our experience. I'll say that again. Metaphor highlights and makes coherent certain aspects of our experience. And in doing so, metaphor can shape the way that we think about things. A great way to see how this works is to have a look at songs that create metaphors for love. For the band Muse, for example, love is madness in their one song. For the Supremes, love don't come easy. They basically say here that love is hard work. Amy Winehouse says that love is a losing game. So love is a game here. But Ryan Adams says that love is hell. And John Lennon says that love is a need because all you need is love. Love is beginning, says imaginary future. And John Paul Young says that love is in the air. And this is such a fascinating metaphor because it suggests that love is a contagion. It's a bit like getting the flu. Love is a battlefield, according to Pat Benatar. Love is a stranger, according to the Eurythmics. And love is gone. In other words, love is a missing object, according to David Goethe and Chris Willis. Love is, to all of these different writers, totally different things, but it's still love, right? Every metaphor modifies the way that we understand a thing. And this brings us to the second really big thing that I want to talk about, although I will do so only very briefly. I've spoken about how metaphor confirms our current experience. But what happens when you take two common experiences and combine them in a new way? Well, this is when metaphor can expand understanding. This is when inception takes place. The truth of the source, the object, 
is modified by the target, that is the metaphorical image. This may seem like a very small thing at first, but it's a really big deal. It means that language can be modified in slight, almost unnoticeable ways and totally change the perceptions of people. And in turn, it can then change beliefs and behaviors. I want to refer to a few examples to highlight the powerful degree to which metaphors shape the way we think. I want to think about the word jihad. I'm sure most of you, if you're not a Muslim, most of you will have heard this because it gets bandied about in the media. Now, most Muslims, for instance, see jihad as a spiritual struggle. In Islam, the real jihad, the greater jihad, as it is sometimes known, is about living a life of peace and self-control and self-discipline. This spiritual struggle is the struggle of living a good life, living well and in harmony with others. This understanding of jihad is primary in Islam. But religious fundamentalists, who are not really religious at all, are in this very fringe group of people, and they've taken the concept of jihad in terms of a much more violent grouping of metaphors. And so jihad becomes, for them, holy war. It's no longer a personal inward wrestling match, but a question of external violence and conflict. As I said, the metaphors we use can change what we believe, or at least shape it in profound ways. Every religious perspective uses metaphors to try and convey its truth, and those metaphors can totally transform the way that people understand what sort of truth the religion in question is in fact getting at. If God is a father, for instance, well, that's great if the father you have in mind is loving, patient, kind, and generous-hearted. But it can prove really problematic and difficult, even for theists, if the father that the person has in mind is rigid, abusive, and intolerant. For some, the metaphor that God is spirit or God is light would be better, but all of this would depend on what beliefs ground the person's understanding? These are all metaphors, because people need concrete ways to express abstract feelings and thoughts and ideas. In fact, we need concrete ways to express other concrete feelings and thoughts and ideas. Atonement theology is deeply shaped by metaphors. In fact, you could even argue that atonement theology is entirely made up of metaphors. And when you realize this, you might also realize that this can deeply affect how people relate to God and other aspects of faith. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, for instance, one of the metaphors that Gregory of Nyssa uses for what happens at the crucifixion of Jesus is that death, like a fish, swallows the bait that is the dead body of Christ, and Christ therefore dupes death into swallowing the source of life itself, and in the end death is defeated, and this pure life acts like a poison to death. That's a really powerful metaphor, isn't it? But then you have penal substitution theology, which is still highly dominant in evangelicalism, and the point is, it's a metaphor, and I think people would really do well not to literalize it. Because as soon as you start to look at the mechanics of the metaphor, you run into trouble. I'm just going to pick one tiny aspect of this really massive metaphor, because in this metaphor, an instrument of torture and abuse 
and injustice, the cross becomes an instrument of justice. And if taken too strictly, all kinds of theological problems arise from this. For some people, maybe it's a very helpful metaphor. But for others, like me, it's a really bad metaphor. Maybe it worked in the medieval era, and maybe it's worked for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for me. Hell is another metaphor, and it's a metaphor in itself. Hell is total darkness, but it's a place where the fire never goes out. How do fire and total darkness coexist? It's a bit like asking, is hell exothermic or endothermic? So many problems arise from missing the metaphor and missing what it's trying to get at. So it does us a lot of good to get back to this. In theology, we use metaphor. Gregory of Nyssa, who I've already mentioned, he talks about how the truth of the good book, namely the Bible, is found in metaphor. Metaphor can be potent and powerful in some senses, but weak in other contexts, and potentially destructive if understood in the wrong light. Maybe some of our theological metaphors have a certain kind of truth in a certain kind of context, but maybe there are better metaphors and better ways of expressing that truth. Maybe we need a few new metaphors. I know that some of you may jump to disagree with my very flexible analysis of how language works, but you will find if you do a little bit of research that language really is much more flexible than we sometimes treat it. And I hope that you know that at at the very least, I'm not offering any kind of complete and detailed critique on what I perceive to be a very complex subject. My point is that sometimes we forget the contextual dependence of truth, at least in terms of our communication. Sometimes we forget just how frequently theology uses metaphor, because how do you express mysteries apart from metaphors? I'd venture to to say that you simply can't. My point, which I suspect you'll agree with by now, because I have been so persuasive, at least I hope I have, is that metaphors matter. We always use metaphors in every context of life. Even science uses metaphors in both good and bad ways. And metaphors are the building blocks of persuasion. They intervene into our consciousness and shape our perceptions, perspectives. Metaphors change our minds. And new metaphors can create shifts in our consciousness and perceptions. So sometimes the question is not, is this metaphor true? But in what way is this metaphor true? And when it comes to communicating, it may help us to take note of the metaphors we use and to even see if we come up with better metaphors for what we're saying. I know, for instance, that some therapists pay particular attention to the metaphors that their patients use, and then they try and help those patients to change their metaphors. In doing that, their entire life experience can be altered, if if only in little incremental steps, because... Let's say most of the metaphors that we use are negative, denigrating, emotionally draining. What if the absoluteness of those metaphors could be made relative and temporary? For a metaphor to be true, though, we need to understand the context in which it exists and understand how the source relates to the target in the metaphorical structure. How is the lens of the metaphor shaping our perception of the thing that the metaphor applies to. 
we also need to recognize the congruence between our experience and the relationship between the source and the target. So if someone uses a metaphor that they mean positively, but which you understand negatively, it may help to ask how your experience is clouding or shaping or shifting your perspective. Persuasion makes use of all kinds of artful deviations. It uses juxtaposition, personification, allegory, and a whole lot of others. But the core to understanding how our concepts and understandings are expanded is metaphor. We always see things through other things because realities never work in isolation from other realities. And I guess this is why Lakoff and Johnson called their first book Metaphors We Live By because we really do, to a remarkable extent, live by metaphors.